The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about if it bleeds, it leads. That is the, um, oh, slang phrase that goes around newsrooms now as it has for untold years before. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that society has become bloodthirsty in a sense. We become hungry for stories that um, show blood, that are violent, that have to do with criminals and deaths and so on. I mean, look, for example, of God, the fascination with Michael Jackson's death um, and I'm not going to talk about that before on the show, but, but even till today, the, the um, top story is about uh, going after his doctor. And, I mean, you know, it's just this morbid fascination that we have with his death and, and with other deaths. Um, and so the news stations or newspapers you know, who, well, primarily came with from new, news, television news stations, television news stations picking the stories um, that were going to go first to get people to stay tuned to that channel, but it can also go for radio and for uh, print as well. So um, what is the impact of this? Well, those of you who have been listening to my show for a long time know that I am passionate about um, trying to get a reduction in media violence. That's all kinds of media, whether it's television, radio, print, music, toys, um, the internet, uh, video games, and so on. And so this whole idea of leading with blood um, is really abhorrent. And in my opinion, um, I, this can never be said too many times, uh, responsible for all of the violence that is going on in the world today. That's not to say that there aren't religious or cultural or societal or various reasons for violence, but it's the violence in the media that provides the fuel that makes people more aggressive. And this has been shown in study after study after study that uh, the more someone ingests violent media of all sorts, it cum- accumulates and makes a person more violent. Yes, people who come from uh, more difficult backgrounds are even more sensitive to this, but it affects all of us. Perhaps. You know, you're thinking to yourself, well, I would never kill somebody or rape somebody, but um, you might yell at somebody um, who's trying to get your parking spot or uh, yell some obscenities out the window or do something else that's not to the extent of murder but um, but is violent, more violent than you would have been years ago, let's say, before you had ingested that many more um, episodes of violent television or movies or so on. 
Well, today my guest is a perfect example of this because um, he was a young man, 16, when a media story that barraged the media, just like we have so many stories doing today, um, affected him quite personally and quite uh, strongly psychologically. And he kept a diary during those years and now has published it in a book called Essential Innocence. Um, my guest is David Foyes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. And I, just to give you an example, because there is no shortage of examples, but today if you look in the news, um, I don't know if, if it's where you are, David, um, in Illinois, but uh, perhaps you heard of the story of 17-year-old Lily Burke who was killed uh, on Friday by a vagrant, a man who has a long history, well, um, alleged, allegedly by this man, he hasn't been convicted yet, uh, but a man has been arrested who has a history of drugs and violent crimes and robberies and so on, and um, all she was doing was work, walking in plain daylight, this was at around 2.30 in the afternoon or so, in the, it was in the afternoon, and her mother had sent her out to a law school where her mother teaches and uh, to pick up some papers, to do an errand for her. And here in broad daylight, she was accosted by a man and uh, and murdered. And apparently they think it has to do with robbery, but, I mean, it kind of doesn't matter at this point other than for the trial, but um, she's dead. And, uh, of course, this has been bleeding and leading, at least in L.A. Have you heard the story? Yes, I've heard about the story, yes. Okay, so (laughs) it's been bleeding and leading all over the United States. Okay. Well, let's start um, with your story, which actually begins before when you were 16 in 1985. Um, In fact, why don't we start from the very beginning, which is something um, that I do normally uh, on my show, uh, put people on the couch who are authors or guests for some uh, reason or another to understand um, why you're so passionate about what you are passionate about, enough to write a book. And um, so let's start with where you were born and what kind of family you were born into, what your, what it was like growing up as a young boy. Well, I grew up in, in Chicago, um, and I grew up in a neighborhood which wasn't very nice. It wasn't a very um, uh, upper-class neighborhood or anything like that. It was a very poor, lower-class neighborhood. And I grew up in a very big family. I'm the youngest of eight children, a uh, very strong, very close-knit Catholic family. Um, and my childhood was, was, you know, typical, very nice, and my parents were loving, and my family was very loving. Well, uh, when I was 11 years old, we were living in Chicago, and my oldest brother, uh, named Frank, who was 25 years old, was shot to death, murdered uh, during a holdup. And this, obviously, is, was just tore apart everybody, and, and not only in our family, but in our whole close-knit church or close-knit uh, uh, neighborhood. And no, wait, this was... So this was when you were 11? 11 years old, right. Um, and how how was he shot during a holdup? I mean, what was his... He was, he was simply uh, walking home um, from his, his girlfriend's house. He got off the bus, and he was walking a half a block away from our house, and three guys pulled up in a car next to him, and without saying a word, they pulled out a gun and shot him and killed him. Hmm. Um, then went afterwards and emptied his pockets, and got about $5 from him, 
and hmm. off. Yeah. Uh, they, they were arrested about uh, a week later, and they served about 10 years in prison each, and they're all out of prison right now. Um, Did you... Um, well, when that happened, um, I mean, it's interesting. You said that you're, you grew up in a poor neighborhood, and he was near right. home when this happened. Mm-hmm. About what time of day was it? This was at night. This was about, oh, I want to say one in the morning or so. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's just surprising. Well, not that a lot of crime doesn't happen in poor neighborhoods, but it's just kind of interesting that they thought to rob him, you know. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What did, what did you or your family say about it at that time? Like, Well, I, I believe the the individuals who, who did this to him, uh, first of all, weren't even from our neighborhood. They were from an outside neighborhood and just happened to be passing through. Mm. Um they were all drunk, um, mm. and they supposedly said they didn't intend to kill him. Well, that didn't make me feel any better at the time, um, obviously. Um, but it was it was just obviously a very devastating uh, incident, especially when he doesn't come home that night, and the next morning, or next afternoon, I should say, you have police officers showing up at your house telling you that my brother is dead mm. and telling my, my parents that their firstborn son was murdered. Um, obviously, it's a very devastating and very, very traumatic incident. Um, and what was that, your relationship like with him? He was my oldest brother. He and I were very close. Um, he, you know, my, my parents worked a lot, and so he was a lot of times the one who was home. He was also a teacher at my uh, grade school, so mm-hmm. not only did I deal with him in that sense, but also all my friends did. All my friends knew him, um, and we were very, very close. He, he you know, I remember a lot of, you know, little incidents with him, like he used to want me home from kindergarten, pick me up at kindergarten, want me home. He was always home during the day, kind of babysat uh, not only me, but my other brothers and sisters. So he was very, very close to us, mm. all of us. So what were your feelings at that time? Well, at the time, I mean, obviously, you're, you're just overwhelming sadness and anger. And at that age, especially, I was 11, um, I mean, certainly you're old enough to understand death and understand the implications of death, but you also had a feeling of just a loss, like, why did this happen? Why Why did something like this was allowed to happen? You don't understand it. Right. Um, it's just completely at, at a loss and just completely confused about the whole issue. Was there any um, race issue involved? No. Um, the, the individuals were, were uh, Hispanic, but uh, it wasn't anything race-related or anything like that. It was just uh, drunken guys who were trying to rob somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, it was that. So how did that change everything for you? It just, well, I like to say that basically it made me an adult at the age of 11. Mm -hmm. Um, It made me grow up very fast. Um, Like I said, I had a very nice childhood, I thought, and and everything was, you know, my parents were loving, and I had, you know, typical, you know, running around and having fun and things like that. And then this happens, and it just changes your whole life and just ends your childhood right there. Yeah. And now you're you're an adult, basically. And I, I said I was a... A bitter old man at the age of eleven, because yeah. that's what I was going to. I, I, I was just angry and just you know upset, and um, I think that anger um, just stayed with me for a long time, and, and, and in a way, it still does. I mean, if, even after you know all these years, it still does. Mm-hmm. And um, did anything happen to your parents? Did they get sick, or did they? Well, I guess they didn't get divorced, but. No, no. They, I mean, obviously, it was, it was extremely tra- uh, traumatic for them. And um, as far as, as they, basically what they did was they found faith in God. 
and turn themselves to the church completely. Mm. And that's what I believe saw them through a lot of it, um, just the support of the church and the support of the community. Um, but, you know, even to this day, my parents, they're, they're in their 70s, and they still, you know, still think about Frank all the time and talk about him. And, mm. um, you know, we still, re- we, we still re- remember him, especially at holidays and birthdays and things like that. Yes, I guess. Um, did, did it have an impact on any of your siblings in a way? I mean, you, uh, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but you've studied um, uh, criminal justice and sociology, right. so I'm sure right. that was, uh, uh, you know, rooted back in when you lost your brother. Did anybody else, did it affect anybody else, in any of your siblings, positively or negatively? Um, I, well, the, the, the strange thing about it was, at that point, and not until recently, I would say the last, oh, maybe five, ten years or so, we never really talked about it. We never really discussed it among ourselves, uh, either with our parents or with each other. Mm. Um, I think it was just too painful for all of us to, to discuss, and nobody ever really discussed it. Now we kind of had, now that we're all adults, we kind of discussed a lot among ourselves, but back then we never did. And obviously it affected them um, in, in all different ways, and it affected you know me, obviously, but in... Everybody carries it with them to this day. Um, when they're, when, you know, my my sisters and my brother all have children now, and they are raising their children to, to remember Frank and remember mm. um, the fact that he did exist, and this, this was a person who existed at one time, even though he's not around anymore. Hmm. Well, well, it seems like um, like you all tried to uh, and have sort of been trying putting it in the best uh, light, although. <laughs> Although psychologically, I'm sure you realize that it would have been better to to be able to talk about it as a family back then. But at least it's good that you're that you're doing it now. And yes, I think right. it's important for people to understand how you, you don't you can't just get over it. You know, it no, does no, affect your no, whole no, life. No. And also, this was 1980. This was you know almost 30 years ago. And back then, you didn't have things like counselors coming up to you and talking to you, uh-huh. or, or, or or you know trauma. Yes. You know, people coming in and talking to you at school or. Experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? 
Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, with my guest today, David Foyes. He's the author of a new book called Essential Innocence. We're talking today about if it bleeds, it leads, and David was just telling us about his first experience with that being, uh, I guess, the center of a news story, right, um, when he was 11 years old and his brother was killed. Um, this was in 1980. And um, why don't you take the story from there? Well, as I said, it was very tragic and very hard for all of us to to deal with that, our whole family, our whole community. And um, as I said also, we, we never talked about it. Nobody ever discussed it. Nobody ever asked us how we were feeling or anything like that. It was almost the impression that deal with it, move on, don't talk about it because it's too hard to talk about. And so, you know, eventually, um, a few years later, 1983, we moved from uh, kind of a poor neighborhood in Chicago to a suburb of Chicago called Westmont. And um, obviously looking back on it, it was a very good decision because obviously it's the, 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 it was a much better, more affluent area to live in. But for me, um, I think a, a lot of it, because of still the anger and the sadness I was feeling over my brother's death, um, it wasn't a very uh, pleasant time for me. Um, and the reason is because I, I basically was a very quiet, shy kind of person and... Um, it was very difficult for me to make friends, and I felt like I was being taken away from my friends in the city and in Chicago and being uprooted and going someplace else where I knew nobody. Because of that, I um, became very 
Um, I was very sad a lot of the times, very angry, very depressed, and most importantly, I internalized everything. I didn't talk to anybody or talk to anybody about what I was feeling. And this led to um, basically feelings of anger and depression almost constantly at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that, that went on from there. When I, I went to high school, and I, I, I didn't... Um, I felt like I didn't fit in in high school. I mean, certainly I, I, I did well in school, and I was never in any trouble with, you know, the law or, or, or within school or anything like that. But I, I really had no friends. And one of the things I did um, is in order to kind of keep myself occupied was I watched a lot of the news, and I, watched, I read a lot of the newspapers almost constantly. Uh, I kept up on current events all the time. And just, you know, always was, we, we, you know, at the time there were two, Chicago, two major Chicago newspapers and I was reading them constantly, watching all the local Chicago news just constantly. This is basically what I did uh, when I wasn't in school. Basically, this, basically, this is what I dealt with time. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and then, uh, basically, it's in 1985, when I was 16 years old, there was a um, very, very huge news story in the Chicago area, um, which is what the basis of my book is about. Um, and this was a story of a... A seven-year-old girl, a little girl by the name of Melissa Ackerman, and in a town called Salmonock, Illinois, which is a little bit around the around the area of Westmont, um, she was kidnapped and later found raped and murdered. Well, when this was going on, this was just the hugest news story of the time. I mean, she was a household name at the time, and first it was the search for her, and eventually, after she was found dead, the search for her killer and things like that. And this news story, um, like I said, it was, it was just every day, all the, all the uh, Chicago news, news uh, stations, all the newspapers, it was just constant, constant, constant. And me, being 16, and as I said, watching the news and the, news, the newspapers constantly, um, followed this case, and ultimately uh, it became more than just a normal news story for me. It became a lot more extreme than that. Yes, what happened? Well, uh, it just because I, I think because it was so blatant and so um, just there in your face all the time, um, like I said, first it was just an interest in the case, and eventually became what I call an obsession. I became just so obsessed with this, with this case and with, with this young girl and with her killer that literally this was all I thought about. Um, it was just, I was just thinking just a, a depression that something like this could happen that this was such a horrible tragedy to me. And I basically, it, it I like to say it changed my entire life because for a long time afterwards, um, literally every thought and every feeling and every behavior I, I, I had or did was related in some way to this case. And this is all I thought about for 24 hours a day, all the time. And I was just watching the news constantly, hoping to hear some word on this, read the newspapers, and just thinking to not only an obsession, but just a depression um, about the whole thing. And I Was it kind of like it, um, that she represented sort of an innocence, um, well, right. your book, Essential Innocence, well, right. I, that she was like an innocence who was um, cut down in her prime, kind of like your brother, but also kind of like your own innocence at 11 years old that got right. cut down? Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, I mean, this is, this is obviously what's more innocent than a seven-year-old girl. And to, to not only to lose a child like that, but also to have a child murdered in such a brutal and horrible way mm-hmm. is just the ultimate, 
horrific act. And it is basically a loss of innocence. Um, I lost my innocence, as I said, when I was 11 years old, I felt, when my brother was murdered. Here again, five years later, here's this child who is almost not only destroying um, my innocence, her innocence, but also the idea that this was a small town she came from, destroying the innocence of the entire community, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And which is what the basis of my book is about. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. It, so how bad did this obsession get? Uh, um, it was so, I mean, I can't even put into words how uh, what the impact of it was on me. I mean, I, I ultimately um, attempted suicide because of it um, and ended up... Uh, seeking psychiatric care for about 15 months uh, just well, to help me deal with not only with, with this, but also with a lot of other issues in my life that were going on at the time. Well, um, one thing that I, you, you, I think that you, identi- you you started to think at one point that you were the kill- her killer, is that right? Right. right. Well, tell us about that. that. Well, it just to me, it was just, um, uh, I was, like I said, I was, it started out, I was so obsessed with this, and in my young mind, I started to believe why... Was I so obsessed with this? Why am I so concerned about this this case? I mean, certainly it's horrible, but you know, there's a lot of horrible news stories out there. Why am I so preoccupied with this? Well, in my 16 year old mind, I began to believe that well, there could only only be one reason why. The one reason would be that perhaps I'm, I was the one who killed her. Um, which, of course, logically, that's that's nonsense, of course. But um, from an emotional point of view, I actually literally believed that I had something to do with this happening. Um, and that obviously led to more depression and more sadness and more anger on my part. And so is that why you attempted suicide? Uh, well, I, what I did first was, um, instead of just going out and, and, and trying to kill myself, um, what I did was I hit a knife and I basically just um, cut myself with it constantly. Um, every day I would just take a knife to my arms or my legs and just slice myself. Um, and eventually got so bad where my arms were just completely, from wrist to shoulder, both arms just completely sliced off completely. And your parents, and, nobody noticed this? Well, no, because what I did was I, uh, I was able to cover it up, believe it or not. Um, just, even though this was the middle of the summer and it was 90 degrees outside, I was wearing a long sleeve shirt and kind of kept away from everybody else. So nobody would notice this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but eventually it got so bad where I realized that you know, I really wanted to die, and I really wanted to kill myself. And that's when I stepped forward and talked to first my sister about it and said, there's something going on here. And this, this led to, to me telling my parents about it and getting starting off on treatment first. So you didn't actually make a suicide attempt other than the fact that the cutting of yourself were these sort of mini-suicide attempts. Right, but the thoughts of suicide were with me constantly. Um, that's all I wanted to do. I basically, I, wa- I wanted to die. And, I, and at one point, I actually prayed to God that I would die for her, asking him to take me and just let me die already because I didn't want to live anymore. And did you um, call the police and tell them that you, like, did you ever tell anybody that you thought you were responsible? Well, at first, I, I was going to, but I, I think for some reason, I didn't know if I had, didn't have the nerve to do it or didn't, whatever it was. I tried to get one of my friends to do it for me, to try to call up and say, hey, this guy committed this crime, mm-hmm. I'm going to arrest him, and my friend never did it. Um, so th- th- then after a while, that became secondary. That I-, I started thinking to myself, well, maybe I didn't kill her after the individual who did kill her was charged. And oh, like yeah. 
And then it went on, but then it became, that became secondary. But the issue was that just that I was just so depressed and so upset about her murder overall. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that became the, mo- the biggest primary focus of me at that point. Wow. You know, let me just stop you here because I know we're going to have to take a break. But, you know, you can tell that um, in, here in your voice that this is still just so upsetting to you as if, oh, oh, almost yeah, as if it were the same, that time. Right. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, I like to say I've matured and grown a lot since then. But, yeah, oh, yeah, it's, it's, still, it's still there with me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we do need to take a break. My guest is David Foyes. He's sharing his story, uh, which does prove that, in fact, uh, these If It Bleeds, It Leads stories do have a lasting impact um, on a 16-year-old and, and really, to some extent, on all of us. His book is Essential Innocence. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at SkillsUSA.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about if it bleeds, it leads, and this is being exemplified by my guest, David Foyes, the author of Essential Innocence, a new book, where he shares his diary, actually, um, and I'm sure you'll talk about that how you, as we go, go along chronologically with what happened, um, but shares his diary of these dark days in his life in 1985 when um, Melissa Ackerman was kidnapped, raped, and murdered, and it bled and led in media stories all over, particularly in the towns, um, the nearby towns, the, the areas outside of Chicago where he lived and she lived, and uh, had such a strong psychological impact. And we, of course, can hear that and appreciate your sharing all of this. Um, because because I know that you feel passionate about getting this message out, how media violence uh, does impact people, and nobody talks about it to the depths that it really does impact people. So right. continue with the story. So when we left, um, you were thinking that you had, were somehow responsible, and I guess that went on for how long did it take till they did arrest somebody? Uh, actually, they arrested somebody within about a week after her body was found. Um, well, how long yeah, was it all together after the murder? Um, about, well, three weeks or so. Okay, so, so for about those three weeks, you were cutting yourself and feeling guilty and thinking that you right. had something to do with it. Right, exactly. Uh, okay, and then um, what happened? Well, then what happened was, like I said, I, I went to my, my, my sister yeah. and my parents eventually about what was going on, and obviously they were very upset. Um, and the first person they sent me to to talk to was a priest hmm. um, and to how to help me talk about my problems, and I, he was the very first person I told exactly why I was so upset. To my parents, I just said I was depressed and things like that. Um, with him, I told him exactly that it had to do with this case, and he was actually the one who basically came out and said, and talked to me logically about it and said, just speaking logically, do you really think you could have killed her? Um, you know, there's no evidence of that. They already charged somebody and blah, blah, blah. And that's what kind of convinced me, no, no, I, 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 I didn't. Um, I was, so that was actually a relief to me to realize uh-huh. that. But also, it didn't help me in the, in the sense that I was still obsessed with this case, and I still felt horrible about it and still felt so in just a complete depression um, over the entire case. It, so I saw him for a few, um, about a month or so I saw him, or a couple of times, you know, I think three times I believe I saw him. And it, it really didn't help me much. Um, I mean, I, I should say it helped me in the sense it was good to talk about it with somebody, but it, it didn't really um, alleviate any of the feelings I was I was having at the time, the anger and just the depression, came on and on. And also at the same time this was happening, all I did all day long still this was the summer I was home, you know, I wasn't in school. I would just watch the news constantly um, and read the newspapers constantly. Um, most of it was just to hopefully to hear something about this case, anything. And you you went from being uh, feeling guilty about being the one who murdered her to feeling that you were her avenger, that somehow you were the one who was supposed to, um, what, get retribution or um, what did you feel that it was just then your job to do? Well, it, our retribution was also part of it. Also, I wanted people 
to never to remember her and to never forget about her and to forget that here was this you know young girl who was murdered now she's gone uh, but we can't forget about that and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I felt a lot of people by not talking about my brother's death kind of forgot about him mm-hmm. well it was now my job to make sure no one was going to forget about this girl mm-hmm. and it was just I, I was just you know so consumed by it and it was just I felt I had to to get this message across across about her. Um, and I actually went so far as to actually speak to her. Uh, I have tried it like almost as if I was having a conversation with her. I mean, obviously, I didn't have her talking back to me, but I would speak to her and tell her, you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm never gonna forget you, and I'm, you know, you're gonna, you're the most important person, and this is, you know, I'm gonna carry on your, you know, this message, and this, this, you know, everyone's gonna know about this horrible crime that happened, and so on and so forth. Mm. So you didn't actually hear voices talking back to you, but you would. No, no. no you would no, no, what no. in your in the privacy of your room have these conversations? Right, exactly. Or yeah, the privacy of of, of my room or any place. Just I would just you know speak mm-hmm. to her. Yeah, I, I wasn't to, to an extent that I heard her talking back to me or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, it was just the idea that you know maybe somehow she can hear me or something like that. And at and, some point, that even you even felt that you loved her. Right, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, that's right. I, I would tell her that, you know, that, you know, I love you and you're the most important person, and this is, you know, I have, I have to carry on this message, and I, I, you know, this, this was such a horrible crime that this should not have happened to you, and I'm sorry this happened to you, kind of thing. And then what happened? Well, eventually, I, I like I said, I was, I was still having these feelings, and in September of 1985, I started high school again, which high school was always very difficult for me, so. I had to deal with that also, and then I started going to a psychiatrist. Um, and I went for about 15 months, um, met for him once a week, with him for about once a week, for about 15 months. Um, and that, again, a, a lot of it did help me deal with with a lot of the problems I was having. But at the time, um, it seemed as if he was focused not so much on this girl or this case. He wanted to uh, work on other issues I was having in my life. Um, he would say, let's work on the anger you have. Let's work on the fact that you don't get along, not get along, but don't, do, um, don't enjoy school very much or that mm-hmm. you feel isolated and depressed. Let's work on those issues. Mm-hmm. And I think this, his, his attitude was, I think this is what caused uh, this whole thing to happen with this young girl. So let's work on the other issues first. Mm-hmm. Well, from my point of view, and I'm not a psychiatrist, obviously, but my point of view was, no, I don't care about that stuff. Let's work on, let's talk about this girl more. Let's mm-hmm. work on this and talk about this and try to get me to feel, I don't want to say feel better about it, but feel okay about it again. Um, so it was kind of a, I don't want to say a battle, but kind of a debate back and forth between my psychiatrist and, and, and me mm-hmm. about the whole thing. Um, well, this, this, you know, like I said, I saw him for 15 months. Well, in the midst of this, in November of 1985, this, this has been going on now for almost six months, um, her killer eventually was convicted. Um, and he he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for that murder and for another another murder also. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, any kind of of, of um, issue with this case brought back a lot of feelings for me and a lot of uh, anger and depression for me. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, I I didn't even consider this 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 guy a human being. Um, I call him it, the thing. He's just a thing to me. He doesn't. He's not even a human being. He just is a thing, a creature, for someone who would, who would do this kind of horrible crime cannot possibly be a human being, was my feeling at the time. 
Um, and after a while, what began to happen then, I kind of um, switched my focus, and I decided that I wanted to do was I wanted to meet this young girl's parents and mm-hmm. tell her my story. Tell them my story, I should say. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to just meet with them somehow and just tell them, and for them to tell me, I, I guess, maybe, that it's okay to feel this way. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. And um, this was not an easy task, and I basically, this became what I call my quest. I wanted to meet her parents, and this was, this was my quest for about six, actually for more than that, for about a year. I just kept going on and on, trying all kinds of different ways just to meet her parents. Uh-huh. And um, everybody I talked to about it, I eventually enlisted, I, I told my psychiatrist about it. Uh, he said, no, it's not a good idea. I had some couple friends at school, I told them about it. And they said, no, it's not a good idea. Everybody I, t- I turned to to try to help me with this, um, because it, it, it's not as easy as it sounds. This was before the Internet or anything like that, so I, I had no way of really reaching mm-hmm. these, these mm-hmm. people. And I kept asking other people for help to help me, and they kept saying, no, don't get involved in that. Don't do that. You have no business doing that, talking to somebody or about something that you don't know anything about, that mm-hmm. this is something that they're going through, very painful for them. You have no business involving yourself in this. Um, now, whether that's true or not, I, I, I don't know. I was 16 and then eventually 17. So to me, all I could see was the fact that I was in pain and, you know, I wanted some way to relieve this. And I also think a lot of it had to do with, as I was saying, um, avenging um, her, her death. I felt that I was now a part of this. I was now a part of this case. That, you know, by being close to or meeting her parents, this would help me be closer to her, that I would be uh-huh. being able to, to avenge, avenge her death in that way and be able to carry on um, this whole quest I had mm-hmm. about her. So, okay, did you ever meet her parents? <laughs> mm, uh, no, I didn't, actually. Uh, but I did write them a letter, eventually. And uh, I, wrote, I wrote a couple letters. They, for some reason, didn't receive a few of them. But the last letter, uh, they, did re- I, they did receive, and I, they wrote me back. And... They told me that basically um, it was okay to go on and I shouldn't grieve and that they appreciated my feelings. Um, Mm. And their last line was, in the letter was, thank you for writing, but please not again. (laughs) And after that, that, basically that was in November of 1986. This was a year and a half after this whole thing happened. Um, And after that, I was able, I felt I was able to go on with my life. Huh. Wow. So... So you were able to, um, oh. <laughs> oh, that music means we have to stop. <laughs> but this, well, we do have one more segment, and we will, <laughs> we will talk some more about it, but it really is a, a riveting emotional story. Um, okay, we'll take the break. My guest is David Foyes. His new book is called Essential Innocence, and uh, we'll be right back with more of his story. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Kara Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Son, we got to talk about drinking. I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough. Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's not a big deal. Don't yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I, I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talking with you today about If It Bleeds, It Leads. My guest is David Foyes, and his new book is called Essential Innocence. Um, David, this is, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to read your book because, um, because obviously, even in an hour, you can't tell all the details. Um, right. You, during the break, we were talking, and you said that you found your diary in 1997, so 12 right. years after the uh, kidnap, rape, and murder of seven-year-old Melissa Ackerman. And right. how did that come about, and what sort of went through your head as to why um, you should turn it into a book? I found it, and I, I basically re- reread it and kind of read through it, and it still it brought back like, a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings for me. 
the other thing was I thought that it was a good story, and I thought, you know what, maybe this is time um, to, to publish it and try to turn it into a book. Well, I had to obviously kind of change things around a little bit because it was kind of poorly written in parts. I had to kind of make it for clarity's sake and things like that. But basically it's the same book that, or the same diary that I wrote back then. Um, I put it into book form. And I worked on it you know, over and over again, you know, back and forth for years and years, kind of put it off for a while and go back to it. And eventually I decided to have it published as a book then. And um, how did your family feel about this? They support me 100% in it. Um, I know they, they realize there's a lot of personal feelings, and even about them, some personal stuff about them and about my relationships with them. But they do believe that uh, also this is a story that I felt I needed to do, I needed to tell, and they support me 100% by it. That's good. And did your psychiatrist, um, did he ever talk about how um, maybe part of the reason why this came about, your reaction, your strong reaction to the kidnapping and murder of this seven-year-old girl had to do with something, especially when you were feeling at one time that you were responsible for that, did you explore whether there was any reason why you might have felt as a little 11-year-old, I mean, uh, who have, I mean, children have these sort of irrational fantasies. I mean, you had that at 16. Um, uh, the things that you felt guilty about in regard to your brother that somehow you you should have or could have prevented his death? Well, I don't know if it was so much prevented it, but I think it was more of a sense that I felt it should have been me instead of him. Mm. Um, that he was, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't want to say my parents loved him more than me or anything like that, but obviously at that age you feel that way. Everyone's mourning for this person and kind of ignores you, and you kind of feel left out like, mm. well, maybe I wasn't as important. So I, in a way, for a long time I felt, well, it should have been me instead. I wish I had been the one that had to die instead of him. Uh-huh. And everyone, everyone would be a lot better off with my attitude, including uh-huh. myself, is what I felt. Uh-huh. And, of course, because your family wasn't really talking about these kinds of emotional things, you didn't have a chance to tell anyone that. No, I, I carried that with me for years, but that, that belief that I felt it should have been me. Instead. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I understand that, ironically enough, today, <laughs> I'd like to say that I planned this, but I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, the killer of, the, of Melissa Ackerman even though he was sentenced to um, life in prison without parole, is somehow on appearing in court today for another murder. How did that come about? There was a when he was uh, confessed to Melissa's murder and along with another murder, he also confessed to a third murder of a ten-year-old girl uh, in this area. And um, this legal wrangling went on for years and years, where there were, there were different people on death row convicted of this crime already, and uh, they were they were exonerated because he confessed. And this just went on and on for years. Hmm. Uh, the men were set free. Well, now uh, the, 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 the killer, whose name is Brian Dugan, uh, is now uh, planning on pleading guilty to this crime of this other murder today in court. Mm. Um, and I, I, I assume what he wants to do is try to avoid the death penalty again and try to just plead guilty and see what happens from there. Uh, so, yeah, even after all these years, it's still going on. I mean, it's, it's, he's still in the news, and, it's, and the case is still going on. And, of course, just like before, when it's still in the news because if it bleeds, it leads, and, uh, and it's still affecting you as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, today, just today in, in the Chicago Tribune, which is one of the, the main newspapers in Chicago, uh, the, the other victim, uh, the other murder victim, his name is Janine Nicarico, the headline of the paper today is Justice for Janine. So mm-hmm. this is still going on after, after almost 30 years. There's still in the newspaper, still headlines in the newspapers. Mm. Um, it's still huge media, media attention about it. Wow. And so um, 
And, of course, also because there are going to be people who are now exonerated, it's probably going to... Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Actually, there's been um, uh, uh, specials about this and shows like American Justice and things like that talking about this particular case, actually. Huh. So Wait, which case? The, the Janine or... Yeah, uh, Janine, right. Uh-huh. And it's become, uh, I mean, it's become a nationwide you know, thing. Everyone, everyone talks about it now. Hmm. Well, so it's, it's I guess still... it's... Uh... I guess it's good for your book. <laughs> yeah, I could totally look at it that sale. way. Yeah, I guess you could. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, talking about that, <laughs> let's let people know um, how they can get your book. Well, if anybody wanted, wanted a copy of Essential Innocence, it's available uh, through the website uh, Amazon.com, or you can also go to any of your local bookstores and they can get it for you there. Yes, and, and you know, it's kind of ironic, I guess, because on the one hand, um, you know, you're you're talking about how how the impact of what happens with all of these violent stories in the media, and and you have to live through this. Uh, although I understand not in as much detail as I put you through it on my couch, um, but you have to live through it to an extent in order to convey that message. And so that's kind of your quest now to let people know um, how bad it is to uh, to continue to go along with this. If it bleeds, it leads. Absolutely, and and they don't realize the effects it's having on on young minds. That this is just to them a way to get ratings or sell newspapers. And well, the people you're talking about are living, breathing people, or were in some cases. And these are not just statistics or nameless people. These are real, real people. And the people you're reporting to, you're talking to, are also real people. So. Yes, and it's yes, it's <laughs> it's it's the. The name of the game isn't just to get ratings, but it's it's right. really the impact on everyone listening. And right. and yep. uh, you know, and for those people, what about when people say, "Well, it had this much of an impact on you because you lost your brother just five years before," and so on? What do you say? Well, I don't think it. I mean, that obviously was was a, a contributing factor, but I think it affects everybody. Everybody hears these things. You can you hear it now it's even more so with the internet and cable television and and just on your cell phone you can get news. Yeah. And it just you hear about it constantly and young. Young children hearing these things, or even, not even young children, it could be you know, adults, anybody, it's bound to affect you in some way, especially all the violence and all the, the, the incidents you're hearing about. Um, it's the horrific things you're hearing about. This has got to affect people. Yes, instead of hearing about some of the good news that's going on in right. the world and encouraging right, exactly. other people to follow their example. Um, right. And I strongly believe in, in copycat violence where people oh, hear things, get excited by things, um, and and uh, tend to copy these things. Right, exactly. Whether it's uh, fiction, like Natural Born Killers, um, right. a movie that had countless, countless copycats all over the world, um, or whether it's true crime. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and you can look at the at, at the tabloid media. You you hear about gossip from some celebrities. No one hear, no one wants to hear about the good things. All, all we wants to hear about is their divorces and their drug problems and things like that. So it goes no matter what, whether it's a celebrity or just an average person, people want to hear the bad, and that's mm-hmm. the shame, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, because um, to feel as though life, their life isn't quite as bad as, as some of these other people's lives. But the, right. the, the sad part is we don't realize that um, this is making our lives sadder because of hearing all of this nonstop in all these different mediums, as you pointed out. Right. Well, David Foyce, thank you very much. And let me spell your last name so people can look for it easily on, on Amazon.com. It's David, F-O-Y-S, Foyce. And the book, again, is called Essential Innocence, and you just go to Amazon.com. And, David, thank you again, and I know you're going to be making lots of 
continue to make lots of great contributions because of these horrible things that you had to go through. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.